If you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, please turn to the book of Acts in chapter 2. That first book, immediately following the Gospel accounts, Acts in chapter 2, and I will uh, meet you there in a moment. We're going to do something today that I don't normally do because there's a handful of texts I'd like us to turn to. Uh, I've actually put the words, hopefully, up on the projector screen to those texts. And so feel free to follow along in your own copies of the Bible. Or if the words are faithfully up on the screen, to go ahead and look on uh, there as well. But in a moment, we'll be looking at Acts 2 first, verses 22 through 24. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the singular event upon which the entire Christian faith is based. We're not embarrassed or ashamed to admit that. We glory in that fact. We celebrate that reality. The Apostle Paul himself stated, as I said a moment ago in 1 Corinthians 15, that if Christ did not rise from the dead, then our faith would be, he says, worthless or futile. He understood that everything depends upon Jesus Christ being a living Savior and Lord. Christ's resurrection meant that death is defeated. It meant that our sins are forgiven. It meant that all of God's promises are true, that we can live our lives in the power of the living Christ, that even raised him from the dead, and that we will one day be raised ourselves with him to everlasting life. It all depends upon the resurrection. And thankfully for Christians, for we here today who are God's people, who have believed the gospel message and, and entered into a relationship with the living Savior, thankful for, thankfully for us, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is an historic event that took place in time and space. Not a fable, not a myth, not a carefully hatched scheme. The resurrection is widely attested to, of course, in the Bible, in the Christian scriptures, and also in ancient history. Indeed, I contend that skeptics of the resurrection have a tall order of compelling evidence to overcome in order to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So think with me, for example, first of all, uh, that you have the testimony of eyewitnesses, several hundred people, actually, who saw the risen Christ. The New Testament includes many of these eyewitness testimonies and also makes reference to several hundred others, some of which we know of from accounts outside of the Scriptures. Hundreds of eyewitnesses that testified to the events of Jesus' resurrection. You have also, secondly, of course, the empty tomb. Uh, Not in the sense that we know where Jesus' tomb is today. I can't actually go. It's somewhere in the Middle East. I know that. But uh, I can't take you to the spot. But nonetheless, uh, there were thousands, perhaps even tens of thousands, who stood to gain if they could only but produce a body of the Lord Jesus Christ. You think of those Jewish officials who were concerned, we read in the Gospel of John, about having their place taken away from them by this Jesus of Nazareth. And then this most destructive event to their position takes place. Now people are saying they actually rose from the dead. Well, you set up the whole thing. You posted the guards out there. You put the door over the tomb. Just go there and get the body, and you can quiet all of this hubbub surrounding this Jesus Christ. And yet these thousands of religious leaders who stood to gain by doing such a thing could not do so. Beyond that... Roman officials who were threatened by the risen Lord, could they not have produced a body, gone to the tomb, given evidence of the fact that this very one had actually died and was not risen from the grave? And yet, though thousands might have benefited from doing that very thing, none were able to produce the body. None were able to contravene the testimony of the empty tomb. 
Thirdly, as evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have the rapid spread of belief in the risen Christ and the unparalleled expansion of the worldwide Christian movement. Listen, the Christian faith does not start with the death of Christ. There were no Christians after the death of Christ. They're all hiding. The Christian faith has been brought to nothing. This man who we thought was our Messiah is a nobody. He's a fraud. And there's nobody gathering together to worship the Lord Jesus. The worldwide Christian movement starts with the resurrection of Christ. And then you have thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon millions upon millions and now billions of people who profess to have entered into a relationship with the living Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. How can you explain against all odds the rapid, unparalleled expansion of the worldwide Christian movement in those early centuries? No one had anything to gain from becoming a Christian. In fact, most people had everything to lose. Attachment to family, some of them their very own lives. And yet thousands are believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ and giving their allegiance, their devotion to Him. Now, if, if, if you have a more skeptical disposition this morning, you're saying, well, I can see some sort of myth being made up in that way. I'm guessing everyone here knows that Billy Graham, great preacher, uh, passed away, I don't know, a month ago or so. Now, if I came to you this morning and I started propagating the myth that he didn't actually die or that he died and maybe he rose again, um, there's a place you can go to verify that. How far do you think that myth would go? Do you think that it would start this worldwide movement of people who worship Billy Graham? Well, certainly not. But yet that happened for the Lord Jesus Christ. I contend because he actually rose. Because he showed himself to hundreds. And because he revealed himself to thousands more. And now there are billions across the globe today and throughout history who profess to be in a living relationship with the living Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead. Fourthly, one piece of evidence that I find profoundly compelling is the radical change that takes place in the disciples themselves. So so think with me for a second just through the lens of the Apostle Peter, the disciple Peter. Okay, so when he first is introduced to this idea that Jesus Christ, his rabbi, his Messiah, is going to go to the cross, is going to die, and then rise again, we have it recorded in Matthew chapter 16, he finds the whole idea repulsive, even abhorrent, and has the nerve to rebuke the Lord himself. He says, this can't happen to you. No way will this take place. I do not embrace this. I do not believe this. And Jesus has to put Peter in his place. But up to those very moments when Jesus is crucified, Peter's a skeptic of the resurrection. He actually flees when Jesus is taken into custody. When faced with uh, the prospect of even saying he knew Jesus, a young, perhaps teenage girl asks him that very question. You were with Jesus, weren't you? He says, I couldn't even know the man. Won't even identify with him. But then, of course, as you know, uh, Peter goes from being a skeptic of the resurrection to then being a witness of the resurrection events. And Ben read this a moment ago in John chapter 20 when he ran to the tomb. He saw it empty and he saw the clothes, the face cloth, and the linen cloth folded. And then later on, if we were to read on in John chapter 20, John chapter 21, he actually encounters the living Jesus in the flesh. He sees the wounds in his hand. And there's a most tender account recorded in John chapter 21 of Jesus restoring Peter. He became, as he later says in his writings later on in the New Testament, he became an eyewitness to his majesty. I love that. He became a witness of the resurrection. So the formerly a skeptic, and then a witness, but a few weeks later, Peter becomes a preacher of the resurrection. 
And in Acts chapter 2, the text we're about to read, he preaches before thousands and thousands of people. And we read on in Acts chapter 3, we read that he's beaten. Later on, he is imprisoned. And church tradition has it, he was crucified upside down, martyred for his Lord. Now you tell me, what happened to this man who who was but a mouse in the presence of a teenage girl, won't even acknowledge that I know who Jesus is. And but a matter of a few weeks later, he's standing before thousands of people proclaiming this risen Savior. What did that? What brought about that radical change? I contend it's the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it initiates, it ignites this worldwide Christian movement where the apostles go into all the world. They preach Christ and men and women are one to a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the living and reigning Lord and Savior. But there's a fifth piece of evidence, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. And it's contained in Acts chapter 2, at least in seed form, verses 22 through 24. So let's read these verses together now. This is Peter preaching to a gathering of thousands, 3,000 of which will be converted that day and be added to the Christian faith. Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Peter says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Remember, this is a man who cowered before a young girl who asked if he even knew who Jesus was. Now he says this, but a few weeks later. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus... Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This morning I want to seize upon those words in verse 23. Jesus was delivered up, he rose again, according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of of God. I want to demonstrate how it is that Jesus' resurrection specifically happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was all according to God's plan. And I want to trace some of the touchstone texts, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that point ahead to this plan that is to be fulfilled in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. In fact, in so many texts in the New Testament, when you read about the resurrection, Luke 24, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 13, 1 Corinthians 15, even John 10, or excuse me, John 20, the text that Ben read a moment ago. There's this note that these events happened. The resurrection of Christ happened according to the scriptures. As Acts 2 says, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The resurrection was all according to plan. And that is what I want to consider this morning. And in so doing, there's two goals that I have. I'll lay them out for you. The first is that I want you who are Christians to know, to appreciate something of the grandeur, the scope, the multi-layered texture of God's redemptive plan in Christ, the story of redemption. And for you, Christian, to see That the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a divinely ordained event, prophesied years in advance, all according to God's plan. And here it is for you, for your salvation and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Two ends that are not mutually exclusive, that are not in conflict with each other. But Christian, I want you to see as the redemptive story is outlined before you, this was for my salvation. 
He was raised from my justification, events that were foretold and that unfolded before our eyes, even thousands of years prior to their actual inception. There's a second reason I want to preach from this text, and that is to you who are not Christians. I want you to appreciate that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that event upon which the whole Christian faith hinges, happened according to the Scriptures exactly as the Old Testament said it would, exactly as Jesus Himself said it would. But more than that, I want you, my unbelieving friend, perhaps you're a skeptic of the resurrection, much like Peter was, I want you to believe in the One who rose from the dead. And to appreciate exactly who He is and what He is willing to do for you if you embrace Him in repentance and faith. If Jesus is risen from the dead, it's the greatest news you could hear today. Because He doesn't come now in judgment. Not yet. But He comes with arms spread wide. Inviting all those who would embrace Him in repentance and faith. And He's willing to receive sinners. To save sinners and to bring them into a relationship with Himself. So I want us to see this Redemptive plan, this resurrection according to the scriptures in the words of four individuals. These are our four main points this morning. We want to consider, first of all, the words of a king. And secondly, the words of a prophet. Thirdly, the words of Jesus himself. And fourthly and finally, the words of a preacher. The words of a king, the words of a prophet, the words of Jesus, and then the words of a preacher. So first of all, let's consider... The resurrection according to plan in the words of a king. And for this, I'll ask you to turn to Psalm 16. The words will also be up on the screen. Psalm 16. Now let me kind of set the context just a little bit. Psalm 16 written by David. When I say the words of a king, I'm referring to King David. Now we know that David reigned about a thousand years before the events of the gospel accounts. Uh, That's not just verified by the scriptures themselves. We have fairly solid archaeological evidence to establish that point that there was a King David reigned in Israel around 1000 BC. Now there's something you need to know about King David that is probably, arguably, the most singularly important event in David's life, and it's recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It provides in the background okay, for Psalm 16. Uh, God, in 2 Samuel 7, uh, again, written about a thousand years before the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, Uh, is about a covenant that God made with David. David has this idea to build a house for God. He's going to uh, uh, build a temple, a dwelling place for God, and God says to him, "Uh, yeah, that's not going to happen. I don't dwell in in temples made with hands. What house are you going to build for me? Basically, your your, your understanding of me, David, is a little too small. Uh, Your theology needs to be a little bit bigger than that. But then God says to David, no, 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 here's what's going to happen. I'm going to build a house for you. There's a wordplay on that word house. Whereas David had in mind a structure, maybe something like this, an actual facility. God has in mind a household, a family, generations to come after David. And God promises to David that, okay, you're going to live to a ripe old age and you're going to die. But there's going to come a descendant, a seed, an offspring, a son of David after you. And I'm going to establish his kingdom forever. He will live forever before me. He will reign forever. Your descendant, David, will be established. So 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 13 says this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down, David, with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
Now the Old Testament writers take up this theme throughout the rest of the Old Testament. There's this coming son of David. God's going to establish his throne. And even when the Israelites were in captivity, they looked ahead to this promise. But there's coming this descendant. And God will establish his throne forever. Okay, so you have to just track with me here. Appreciate that covenant that God had made with David. This hope, this expectation that's coming. What you have to know is when you come to the Psalms in the Old Testament, sometimes David is writing about his own experience. And then sometimes, self-consciously, sometimes without even knowing it, he takes upon the posture and the consciousness of this descendant that is to come. So he writes in such a way that transcends his own circumstances and he foretells of events that are going to surround the life of this descendant, this son of David. Because he knows God's going to establish my seed after me. And this son of David will come. And he actually writes, transcending his own experience, writing about the experience of this one to come. There's some mystery attached to that. But nonetheless, it's clearly verified. So before we get to Psalm 16, I'll just mention one psalm like this, Psalm 22. Which is a psalm that foretells of the death of Jesus Christ. So, I'll just read a few verses for you. You Tell me if this sounds like anybody you've read of or heard of before. Psalm 22, verse 14 says this. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. I can see David writing that possibly. Kind of poetic, I suppose. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. David's hands and feet were never pierced. In David's day, there was no such thing as crucifixion. Could it be that David is writing in such a way that transcends his experience? Now, I see some of you are looking on the screen. We're not in Psalm 16 yet. Still in Psalm 22. I'm just reading these verses to you. David's clearly writing it away in Psalm 22 that transcends his own experience. You've pierced my hands and my feet. Could he be talking about this descendant of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose hands and feet were pierced? Then he says, verse 17, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Did that happen famously anywhere else? A thousand years before the events of Jesus' death. And David is writing about his crucifixion. And of course, to the skeptics, this is all just a massive coincidence. I mean, this is, he just is a really good guesser. Somehow this was all prearranged. Well, now we get to Psalm 16. That's up on the screen. And this is a psalm, again, a messianic psalm that's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. We know written about a thousand years prior to those events. And David is here writing about this seed that's going to come. He says this, Psalm 16, verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or Hades or death. You won't allow me to die. Now wait a minute. 2 Samuel 7, God told David he was going to die. Whatever could he be talking about? For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption or decay. You're not going to let my body rot in the grave. You make known to me the path of life. And in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We know David never sat at the Lord's right hand. Psalm 16 is talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ the Messiah. The son of David who was to come after him. And is it just some spectacular coincidence 
that this Jesus of Nazareth came from the line of David. The genealogies are recorded for us in two places, Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 3. You can go look at them. These records were kept by the Jews. No one disputed the fact that Jesus was actually the seed of David. And it just so happens this whole Christianity thing started through this man who died exactly according to the plan and foreknowledge of God recorded for us in the Old Testament and was raised according to the same in Psalm 16. What a spectacular coincidence. But you know as well as I do, this is no coincidence at all. Jesus did come in fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. He did come and suffer and die in fulfillment of Psalm 22. And he did rise from the dead in fulfillment of Psalm 16. His days were prolonged. He did not see, he was not abandoned to Hades, to Sheol. And his body did not suffer decay. It did not rot as David's body did. But he was risen from the dead. Now secondly, consider with me the words of a prophet. The words of a prophet. And this text is found in Isaiah 53. Feel free to turn there. The text will be up on the screen as well. We've seen the words of King David recorded a thousand years before the events of Jesus' death and resurrection. Now consider the words of a prophet from Isaiah 53. Two schools of thought on the date of Isaiah's uh, prophecies. 66 chapters recorded in the Old Testament. There's an early date. There's a late date. We believe that it was written in around 700 B.C., 700 years before the events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. There are some scholars who contend that that is impossible because the predictive power of Isaiah's words are so great. He predicts all these historic events that happen exactly as he said, and these skeptics assume supernaturalism is impossible. So based on no evidence other than that, they contend, well, it must have been written more like 300 to 400 B.C., I don't care what date you actually put on Isaiah because it happened before the events of Jesus' life and death. And Jesus' life and death and resurrection happened exactly according to the details of Isaiah's account in the latter part of Isaiah's prophecy. I just want to look at Isaiah 53, uh, a passage that dwells first of all in Jesus' death and then prophesies of life after death, the resurrection to come. Follow along as I read Isaiah 53, 1 through 12. Isaiah writes, Who has believed? What he has heard from us. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before it shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. I recall the Lord Jesus being particularly quiet before Pilate. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked. Was Jesus not crucified with two notorious sinners to his right and to his left? 
And with a rich man, thus Joseph of Arimathea, in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now the resurrection. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. And present tense makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah tells, we we go to this text often to talk about the death of Jesus. Talks about how this one will come and bear the sins of his people. Some of the details are recorded and they're fulfilled exactly as Isaiah recorded them. In fact, the New Testament writers point back to Isaiah 53. And yet in the latter part of this text, it says this, this one, his days will be prolonged. He will see his offspring. He will be satisfied. After he makes atonement for sin, he will see. He will make intercession. His days will be prolonged. Behold the resurrection according to plan. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. First in the words of a king a thousand years prior. Then in the words of a prophet 700 years before those events. Now consider with me thirdly the words of Jesus. The words of Jesus himself. The resurrection happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Please turn to John chapter 10. And consider with me the words of Christ foretelling of the resurrection events. John chapter 10, verses 14 through 18. Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. And I have prayed this morning that sheep who are not presently of Christ's fold would hear these words and be drawn into a relationship with the shepherd. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. You think to the events of Jesus' death, you think that that happened against his will? Jesus was outside of Jerusalem. We read in Luke's account, he set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. He went there to die. He told his disciples as much. I got to go to Jerusalem. I have to suffer. I have to die. Three days later, I will rise again. You think he was surprised when Judas betrayed him? I personally believe that Jesus went to exactly the spot where he knew Judas knew he would find him. But Jesus even told Judas, what you do, do quickly. Let's get this show on the road. There's a plan that has to take place. There's this whole plan. Well, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. So please, Judas, make my day. Go out. What you do, do quickly. And let's start this plan of redemption in earnest. Judas goes out, betrays the Lord. He goes to the cross. Doesn't plead his innocence. He's quiet. And then goes on the cross and he's mocked there. And why doesn't he call a legion of angels down? Of course he could have. And he did not. Jesus is telling his disciples right here in John 10, I lay down my life of my own accord. When you see these events take place, make no mistake. This is all according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is happening just as we have planned it. This is happening just as we have 
written in this redemptive story that's unfolding before your very eyes. I lay down my life. He says that I may take it up again. All deliberate. All exactly according to plan. He says, verse 18, no one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There's several other texts I could have gone to in the Gospels where Jesus foretells of his resurrection. But moving on now to the fourth point. The words of a preacher. See, the words of the king, words of a prophet, the words of Jesus. Now, fourthly and finally, the words of a preacher. And now we're going to go back to Acts chapter 2. And read a little bit more now. Acts chapter uh, 2, verses 22 through 36. Now Peter, who's been an eyewitness to his majesty, witnessed the events of the resurrection, preaching to thousands, he says this, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and now he goes right to Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before him, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. We go down a few blocks and check out the tomb if you want. His tomb's with us to this day. Verse 30, Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne... He, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. And he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know. And let everyone sitting in the sanctuary of 407 Petrie Road know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. All according to plan. All according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Are these events, my friends, a coincidence, some hoax? Or through predictive prophecy, were these events foretold thousands of years in advance? And did the Lord Jesus himself go to the cross just as it was said? And did he rise again according to the scriptures, just as David said and Isaiah said and the Lord himself said when he was among us? Now, why does all this matter? I'm seeking to demonstrate to you that Jesus Christ was, in fact, risen. But he was risen according to a particular plan. These aren't bare facts without any interpretation. My friends, I tell you this morning that Jesus rose according to the Scriptures. There is an empty tomb in the Middle East. There are millions upon millions of people in the world today who are in a living, vital relationship with the living Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And these events matter to you, my friend, because today you can enter into a relationship with the living Christ. As truly, even more truly than you see my arms spread wide this morning. Jesus is before you with arms spread wide, calling to you to come to him by faith. My friend, everyone here is a sinner by nature. Rebels against our creator, God. Every single one of us was lost. No one here is here by right. No one is in a relationship with God himself by merit. It's all of grace. And my friend, I say to you that by grace, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you yourself could be saved. You could enter into a relationship with God himself. And the good news for you, my friends, is that because Jesus is living, your sin can be addressed. Death can be overcome. The wrath of God can be assuaged. You can be made well. You can be healed. All can be right with your soul. It can be well with you. Today, your sins can be decisively dealt with through the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you say how? By coming to Him. As you would any other person. Cry out to Him. I plead with you. Go to the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus. Repent of your sins. Turn away from your sins and look to Him in faith and say, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to be your disciple. I want to be forgiven of my sins. I want to be yours. Make me yours. And I have the privilege. I have the joy of telling you that to everyone who comes to Jesus, he or she will be received. He loves to show grace. He loves to show compassion. The living, reigning Savior doesn't look upon you in judgment. Today is the day of salvation. And he offers himself to you. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. He says, come to me, all you who thirst. He says, come to me, all you who are hungry. And so I tell you, my friend, you can come to Jesus Christ today. You can have life in his name. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish. Will not perish. Why should you perish? Will not perish, but have everlasting life. I offer this to you through our risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, today. Let's pray together. Our Father, the resurrection of Jesus Christ fills us with hope. Hope that we can be considered right before a holy God. Hope that we could be saved from all of our sins and from death and from hell. And hope that we can forever inherit paradise with Christ, raised with Him to endless life. It fills us with hope that those here who do not know the Lord Jesus can be saved today. Jesus Christ ever ready stands to save. May you come in power now and save souls in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.